This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. If you've been following along for the last few weeks, we've been talking a lot about this concept in the Old Testament of a distance between God and and humans, and how if you're going to go into God's presence, there needs to be something that changes. Not because God is mad at you or because you're bad, but because of the two different types of beings. And we've compared this more to like an astronaut going to visit aliens on another planet, the types of changes that would need to happen with different breathing apparatuses and different um, things that you would wear in order to go and make contact with this other being. So a couple episodes back, we were talking about priests and the role that they play then in the Old Testament in this whole worldview that we're laying out here. And we got into that a little bit, but we want to get into that a little bit more because the idea of priests and the idea of holiness is going to be really important as we get into this whole case for a different way to look at atonement and how approaching God looked like in the Old Testament. Right. So just to ground this week's conversation and this overall set of conversations. If you recall, I mentioned uh, a scholar, Fleming Rutledge, who in the last few years published a book that won awards, a super popular book that I appreciate for many reasons, uh, a book called uh, The Crucifixion. And I use this as an example, uh, not to be overly critical of somebody, but as an example of the, the lack of attention to what's typically been called ritual purity or Israel's cultic system, this whole thing of a tabernacle or a temple and animals and sacrifices and blood, like that whole thing, um, there's been so little attention to that being an important part of of what Jesus did and how we are to make sense of Jesus. Um, Specifically, uh, this ritual purity, ritual holiness side of it. Um, And so I I mentioned the Fleming Rutledge book as an example of someone who spent over a decade as a scholar working on all of the various ways that the New Testament is trying to understand Jesus— and just in one little footnote of a many hundred page book said, we're not even going to talk about ritual purity because it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus or anything to do with what the New Testament means when they talk about atonement. And I think a lot of people are there, right? Like I think a lot of kind of Western uh, reformed churches here in America would probably agree with that statement that those we're kind of talking about two separate things here. Correct. Yeah. And I think... Uh, that does a couple things. Uh, one is that that is, is misleading in terms of what atonement actually is. So then we read atonement as a, as a concept and therefore the whole sacrificial as a concept that is all about morals, morality, which leads inevitably, I think, into this sort of wrath appeasement motif, right? Like we are bad morally, so something needs to be done to make up for our badness. So possibly this is kind of supporting that penal substitutionary atonement view then. This is kind of, maybe we're seeing 
the the steps that you can take to more easily get to penal substitutionary atonement. Maybe it's kind of it starts with some of these foundations. Yeah, or I th- I think if you don't understand what the temple was doing and what the tabernacle was for and what atonement actually was in that whole system, you have to make up a meaning of it, right? Because we see the the concept of atonement, which is a concept from that system, the tabernacle system, being used to uh, apply to Jesus. So I think what happens is a lot of us just make up for ourselves or we're trying the best, right? But we have to figure out what that term means. And even you, Nate, in a, on a past episode, s- said something about the, the role of sacrifice in ancient cultures of like, you know, isn't it weird though that part of divine revelation is taking this sort of like crude pagan uh, practice of killing animals uh, you know, to appease the gods and like making little tweaks to that. And I, and I basically said like, I think that stereotype that, that you have of quote pagan, uh, cultic rituals is just that it's just a stereotype because we haven't understood how these systems of ritual actually work and what they represent, what they mean. But the same thing happens then when we look at Israel's cultic system, we just make up these stereotypical uh, beliefs about what the ancient Jews thought they were accomplishing when they killed an animal, what the blood was for, what the whole thing was doing. I kind of got that a little bit just talking to Rabbi Danya last episode. The the thing that struck me most through that conversation, and if you haven't listened to it, she's a wonderful person and um, a wonderful teacher, and you should go back and listen to that. It was a great chat. But what struck me the most through that conversation is how ignorant I really am. Um, and I'm trying, like I've been trying the last couple of years here to not be ignorant anymore and to, to learn and to learn from other perspectives as much as I, much as I possibly can. And I'm still very, very ignorant. Um, and I guess that was just a wake up call for myself personally. And then I'm realizing the whole Christian subculture is probably very, very ignorant about what Jewish people now, but also Jewish people throughout history have been trying to accomplish with their practices and their beliefs. Right. And so you know, I think this, the absence of understanding in Christian theology, especially modern Protestant theology of this whole idea of a, of a ritual cultic system in which God is, is living with people that pushes us towards a penal substitutionary view, and I would say just a misunderstanding of of atonement theology on one hand. But on the other hand, I think you can look at exactly that idea and say that truly, in history, Christian ignorance of the cultic system, of Jewish practice, of Jewish faith, of what this whole thing was about, often ignorance that confuses all of this with legalism, right? Um, or sort of strange ritual practice that was missing the point, like that kind of thing. Christian ignorance plus Christian arrogance has led to the dissemination of Christian anti-Semitism throughout history since the birth of the church. And Can you explain that to me like I'm five? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I think everybody... The reason we can't get away from supersessionism, there, there are many reasons. We won't get in that here. But there's an inherent arrogance to the New Testament, right? It's claiming Jesus as the 
ultimate fulfillment of everything that the Hebrew Bible was pointing towards, right? That's just a big, loud, brash claim, right? Now you can you can hold that claim very humbly as an individual. I'm not saying that every Christian is an inherently arrogant person to believe believe that, but it's like a big, bold claim, right? And then it's a claim that in as we talked about with Rabbi Danya, that the way the the Gospels put it is a claim that it is is in a kind of hostile relationship to various other parts of the Jewish community, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Gospel of John, it literally just says the Jews, right? So there's a hostility that the Gospels are sort of like already pushing us to. There's an arrogance, I think, the basic Christian Christian belief system sort of can push us to. And when we combine that with a total ignorance of all our shared roots, all the common ground between Christianity and Judaism, all the ways that Jesus was a Jew, believing his interpretations to be utterly Jewish, that sort of thing, it leads to this sense of like Jews were wrong, Christians were right, you know, Jesus had to come because they were getting everything wrong. Jesus had to come because they were getting carried away with all these rules and laws and trying, you know, the, the classic Luther lens of the problem was Jews trying to work out their own salvation, legalism. Hence, Jesus is the solution via grace and faith. And that's what Romans is then all about too, right? Like in, in that worldview, Romans and Paul are primarily about showing that we've been off the Jewish people and what they were trying to do, this whole law and works and earning your salvation idea um, is wrong. And, and it's all about like trusting in the finished work of Jesus. In, in the reformed churches that I have been a part of, ones that I've taught in and started, including those, that is the message. That is the gospel is that you can't earn anything as if, as if that's the big debate of like, should you be earning your salvation or is your salvation just given to you? That is the, what the whole thing is about. Right. And now Catholics have been added to the list of scapegoats, right? So it's like, well, the Jews, they had all these, these rules and laws. So they, they were in opposition to Jesus and true faith. Right. And now like, look at Catholics, like they use rosaries, like they have practices like that, you know, so Anything that strikes us as ritualistic in in the Lutheran framework is counter to uh, what true faith, true Christianity uh, means. And so, again, to, to just say there are at least two reasons why this is important. One is we want to push back on that anti-Semitic strain. And two, I think that also just completely misleads us into to missing the the basics was that the the New Testament writers collectively all believed what Jesus had accomplished was a a cultic accomplishment. Uh, it was an accomplishment in the same sense that that Jesus was doing what the the tabernacle and temple were doing and what those things were for was not about appeasing God. They weren't about morality. They weren't primarily about forgiveness even. Um, so it's, it's sort of two important things. Um, and I just, I bring up the Fleming Rutledge thing to just say, this has been utterly absent from the, the bulk of Protestant theology, even though in the realm of biblical scholarship, 
This has just been known and understood for decades. Okay, this seems huge, and this seems like it changes everything. Um, and so I want to get into this. Let's uh, let's dive in. Okay, so last time we briefly got into priests, we dabbled into holiness, but we really haven't talked about that much. Um, I think what we're going to do is sort of do like a tabernacle system for dummies here, <laughs> just some basic intro, um, and even just just talk about the significance and the basic assumptions that would go into the central idea of people being with God in a shared space. So sort of get through all that. Nate, your job's going to be, if I get going too fast, or I say things that I'm assuming you're tracking and you are just not at all with me, uh, or I use terms that uh, (laughs) you have no idea what I'm talking about, you got to keep me grounded and help make sense of this. Oh, I will. Let's go. Let's do this. Okay. So did you ever read or hear of uh, Sky Jathani's book called With? Yeah, I read it. Yeah. uh Uh-huh. I read that early in my reimagining my faith um, shortly after coming back from San Francisco when that time was ending and we were coming back to Portland. So probably about, was that five years ago now? Yep. It was pushing back against uh, interpretations of the main scheme, the main overarching story of the Bible being one in which we're supposed to be in relationship under God or be in relationship uh, working for God, sort of like an employee. And he was pushing for, no, the, the primary relationship as depicted in these prepositions is one of, of humans being in a relationship with God, partnership with God. So here's why I bring that up. I think it's a good example. I think he's right that the, the main overarching story of the Bible is humanity being with God. But this is an example where we are not taking the Bible literally enough. I think the way I remember reading that book, and it's been years, uh, is it it was essentially this sort of spiritualized metaphorical with, right? It's kind of like the, you know, we're in a relationship with Jesus, but what in the heck does that actually mean? You know, it's kind of like this whimsical, overarching, it's an abstract idea of being with God. The entirety of the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and then everything that comes after that, which is building on those first five books, is about the very concrete, not abstract at all, incredibly practical, concrete idea of humans being with God physically in the same space. Gotcha. Okay. Like we're at the store together. We're in that place together. Right. Not like I'm with you, man, but like literally being physically together. Uh, I mentioned briefly in a past episode, that's the idea of Emmanuel and a human being who's going to be called Emmanuel, that, that word that means God with us, that's what that this is tapping into. But really, one way of looking at what the Pentateuch is, is a story about Israel camping out with God, with Yahweh, 
and and that theme that they're going to share a space together is the central theme that carries on that would say is one of the main things the New Testament writers seeing Jesus as having accomplished. First, Jesus was the the form of God that humans could be with in real life, flesh and blood. Just as in he was a human. Correct. Not like he made a way so that we could be with, but just like literally he was here and we're here and we were here together and we can actually see this this being and relate to it. Yeah, I mean, sure. It's the, think about it. It's the beginning of the Gospel of John. The word of God became flesh and tabernacled among us. Right. It's presenting Jesus as the presence of God living in a temporary uh, dwelling, this tent, the tabernacle. So, so Jesus was the tabernacle, but also it's the, it's the idea of what Jesus has accomplished via his, his life, death, resurrection. We'll get into all this a bit later, has made it so that we can now physically be in contact with God via God's spirit. So this is why you get this language of, you know, this indwelling, right? It was strange to us. And again, it's like this abstract idea. It was meant to be and presented as even the, that language of indwelling is very concrete, physical language that God's spirit, rather than going to reside in the temple, was going to reside in physical human bodies as temples. That is a physical contact, right? <laughs> Somehow this spirit-to-body contact that simply wasn't possible before. And and it's that idea, this impossibility of contact between humans and God that we talked about. It's impossible because we're two different substances. We're, we're two different kinds of beings. There's an ontological, cosmological difference such that one of the metaphors we looked at when a a normal thing like a person or an object comes into contact with God or a holy thing. Fire is the primary metaphor for what occurs. Right. Flames, explosion, erupt, right. like fire happens. Uh, so we've used this metaphor of a nuclear reactor. Uh, and actually I think we'll expand on that uh, a little more because in our modern sensibilities, nuclear power with both the power to do great good and the power to do incredible harm, right? If a if a nuclear reactor melts down, just the mass disaster and danger of that. Uh, it's like power and it's most potent. Um, I think it's a, f- a fitting metaphor. In the ancient world, fire would have just been the most potent form of, of power, energy, danger, whatever that you could imagine, right? Now we like have one up to that a thousandfold. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian. I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. 
So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) So the the idea is that there are a set of assumptions of why humans can't just hang out with God. It's not that easy. And like we said, it's not because God doesn't like us. It's not a moral issue. The obstacle is not uh, moral in nature, primarily. It doesn't mean morality is not going to be involved. It doesn't mean there aren't going to be ethical, moral, behavioral elements to the laws, for instance. Uh, But it has to do with these basic assumptions about how the world just actually is. So the point of the tabernacle, the point of even, according to the text, the creation of Israel, uh, the whole project was one in which God was going to make a way for all of these obstacles, the obstacles necessitating a separation and distance between God and humanity. God was going to create a way, a system, to overcome those obstacles so that God could be with Israel, live with them, dwell with them, and that in doing so, they would be able to regain the kind of partnership that the whole Adam and Eve story was was depicting for us, and then set about together restoring the world. So really, I think the, the one way of understanding the big picture story of the Bible is the story of God needing to, to be reconciled back to being able to to dwell physically with humanity or some subsect of humanity to then go about fixing the world so that the entire world could could dwell with with God together so when the pentateuch tells a story of God liberating the israelites from slavery to egypt and then meeting them on a holy mountain in the wilderness and going to incredible lengths to give all these details about how to build the tabernacle, how to arrange the furniture in the tabernacle, what sort of supplies to use, then how to operate this system and all these laws by which the system must be operated. All these details, which most of us read through and we're like, what the heck is this for? I'm done with my read the Bible in a year plan, right? Yeah, I'm just going to go enjoy February. (laughs) (laughs) The whole point of all of this seemingly strange data that we are given is that this is the system which is going to enable humanity via this group of Israel to overcome all of these obstacles and actually be close to God. And then by being close to God, they'll be able to do really good things in the world. So there are a thousand places I could point you to show this, but let's just one text. So there's a verse, Leviticus 26, is just one of many that sound this way and make this point. In verse 11, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Mm. Dwelling place there, that's just the word tabernacle. It's like a tent. I'm going to set up camp among you. I'm going to camp out with you. And I'm going to walk among you, right? Physically with you. This is a a clear allusion back to 
the scene in the garden where God is walking among Adam and Eve in the garden. It's a, it's a picture of God being together with people. Then there's this tragic separation that occurs. And the hope and the promise is they're going to overcome that separation and be able to, to be together again by camping out together. So literally, this is like a, the idea is a cosmic divine camp out. This is your dream. <laughs> yep. Tim's the outdoorsy one. Yeah. With mountains, rivers, it's got everything. Uh, no mention of fly fishing, but uh, can't have it all. Exactly. And as silly as it sounds, I mean, we just make some stupid jokes about it. This idea of camping out with God is the entire premise to the entire Pentateuch. Much of Genesis is giving us preface stories about individual people who end up encountering God and camping with angels in individual moments on small little hills. Pause, pause, pause. Okay, so you brought up a verse there, and I think there's a lot of passages like that where God says, I will... I will be among you and I will be your, I will be your God and you, you shall be my people. And it's usually there's some condition in there if you keep my commandments, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that's, the, and we talked about this, the way that's usually interpreted is, you know, you need to be a certain quality of person in order for me to be around you. So then it's not, we can go to this camp out with this really, really amazing, perfect person but we need to kind of be on our best behavior campers, okay? If we're going to go and do this thing with this person, it's like, you know, you picture camping with, like, the Queen of England is coming, and we need to, you know, we need to kind of step it up here a little bit. You're saying it's not it's not that so much. It's not like we need to be uptight and try to be better than we really are. It's more like we're camping out. And again, Paul, we're going cosmic here. Um, it's more like we're camping out with aliens yeah that's i think actually this is precisely where the the nuclear reactor metaphor uh is is perfectly fitting the i think the alien thing fits better for just trying to reckon you're gonna make are you gonna make me get rid of the aliens tim i love the aliens (laughs) i think it works better for for recognizing the distance and um and like the translation between right kinds of of beings that has to happen but when it comes to the rules, right, uh, and you see a ton of this in Deuteronomy, but it's it's everywhere. It's the conditionality. I will be among you so long as you essentially follow the rules. And again, we interpret that because like, otherwise you'll be bad and I'll think you're bad and so I'll destroy you. The reality is it's like we're going to live together, but the nature of what that means is that this will be the most dangerous possible existence for any humans on earth it will be like moving into the center of a nuclear reactor so it's a it's a camp out in the middle of a nuclear reactor and there's rules that we need to follow in order to go to this camp out and the rules aren't primarily about us being trying to be better than we are it's about needing to do some things differently than we usually do them they are they are to survive so that's why i point out you have all these lines that put the laws, the rules in the context of, of do these and you will live. And I've made the point before, I think we are supposed to, I think the context makes clear that we're supposed to, to read that as literally do these and you'll survive. Don't do these. And like Nadab and Abihu, you won't survive. So get this, uh, check this out. I actually hadn't seen this until I got real deep in my studies. There's a 
even a debate in scholarly world about the relationship between narratives and laws. And so one thing you'll notice, like we just said, there are these large portions of text throughout the Pentateuch that are essentially giving really strangely detailed information about how Israel was to do certain things. So in Exodus, you have really long-winded information about how they were to build the tabernacle and all of its instruments and parts, right? How would you, Tim, how, just real quick, how would you have explained that six or seven years ago if you were teaching something in the church? Oh, gosh. How would you have explained that? Wasn't it just that God took things really seriously and we need to like follow these rules even if they don't make sense to us because God takes things really seriously? Maybe. I, I So here's the thing. I don't think I ever had an explanation for for the value of those texts, the here's how you build it texts. Mm-hmm. Um, but I but I felt like we needed to have an explanation for why the laws in Leviticus, right? Like why you shouldn't sleep with your mother-in-law or why a man shouldn't sleep with a man, right? Because those are a part of all our ethical debates. So we got to know why those texts were there. What I had never connected, you know, no one was arguing about whether Israel was really supposed to build a tabernacle 100 cubits long or 120 cubits long, right? Like, basically, we just all sort of casually agreed to ignore that and move along. Um, But then on the Levitical law, then we all had, like, something we had to deal with. What I had never seen is, is the way that these are all working in conjunction So there's a set of texts saying, here's how you're supposed to build this thing. And the number one assumption, which I think we need to have in our head is, and it's very important that you carefully follow these rules to the T because you're building something as dangerous as a nuclear reactor, Hmm. right? (laughs) And then you have this whole set of laws in Leviticus for how you run the system, how you live there. And it's very important that you follow these rules to the T because you're living in something as dangerous as a nuclear reactor. Right. And then you have a whole other set of texts, again, like the, the Exodus ones about building the tabernacle. I had ignored this set of texts in Numbers about how to transport the tabernacle. You have multiple chapters saying, here is precisely how when you move your camp from one place to the next, here is how the nation as a whole is going to work together in unison to successfully carry the tabernacle from one place to another. And it's, why are we reading this? Because it's very important that you follow these rules precisely because you're transporting something as dangerous as a nuclear reactor. So, so get this, this is the piece I hadn't seen for each of these sets of instructions about how to do something important that are in the text. It's not told to us whether these are for us today, whether they were for anybody ever. They're just put there, right? And Mm -hmm. we just are reading them (laughs) without any instructions on what to make of it, right? They're just there. And then you have these stories that are interspersed throughout, and we're not really told what to make of the stories. So the Nadab and Abihu one is one that we've covered so far. Uh, But then you have others like the Golden Calf, story where it's seemingly strange out of place story 
It would be odd timing of precisely at the moment when Israel's meeting God for the first time and declaring that they're going to worship God. And Oh yeah, all the people then are down at the bottom of the mountain building this gold calf. And that was always, okay, so that was always used as like, and this is why, it's kind of more evidence of why the law didn't work, right? Because look, the people's hearts, they needed a change in their heart, right? They needed a they needed Jesus actually living in their heart, not just this set of rules written on tablets of stone. Because look, every time they're going to, they God can be on the mountain, you know, hundreds of yards away from them. And they are just going the way of all the other nations building idols and turning their back on God. Yep. How is it not that, Tim? So for, for each set of texts telling everyone how to do these things precisely, their precise set of instructions, there is a story that depicts what happens when people don't precisely follow those instructions. So the one we've looked at, and and this is what makes these stories uh, more important than the space they take up, but it also then, these stories work better work back into these other passages of laws to show us why we're reading these these laws. So you're saying they'll give us a law and they'll say, you know, here's this rule, do this, this, this thing. And then you'll hear like a narrative story about something happening. And instead of just taking that narrative story and and pulling it out of context and saying, okay, what can we get from this? What can we learn? What can we, you need to directly tie that into the law that was just given. You're seeing an outworking of that law that was just given. And what happens if that law, that rule isn't followed? Uh, yes, but not uh, about specific individual laws. That does happen. Uh, and people have spent a lot of time, and I think it's worthwhile connecting various individual laws to other places in the Bible where somebody is breaking that law or upholding that law or, or whatever. Uh, there's an important relationship between law and narrative there. I'm talking about you have these large groupings, several chapters long gotcha. okay. of sets of laws with a common theme. So again, to just break them down in Exodus, you have a set of chapters about how to build something correctly. And then what do you see? A story of Israel building something that is not what they were supposed to build. They built a golden calf. They didn't build a tent. The The point was, here are instructions about what you are to build by the dimension, by the material. Everything is given, precisely prescribed. And then we see a story of Israel not knowing or not following those prescriptions and building something else. So we've interpreted the golden calf story as, as usually, you know, this, this completely brash form of intentional idolatry. It's much more likely that the, the way the story is meant to be interpreted as we're reading it in context with these laws is they just didn't have the prescriptions for how to build the kind of dwelling place that that God, Yahweh, was actually going to live in. So what they went about building was the same kind of, of little physical miniature image, icon, that the Egyptians, the Babylonians, any of the ancient, most all the ancient peoples built to be little houses of God. So this is more like 
trying to communicate with your spouse, significant other, and they're like, hey, can you make, you know, can you make dinner or something like that? And you're like, okay, yeah, I'll just, I'm making what I picture in my head as being like, and they had something completely different in their head of what, so they weren't like trying to make this horrible thing that, that their significant other would not have liked. They were trying to make something that they would like, but it was just what they had in their head of what that picture would be. And then the significant other gets home and is like, are you kidding me? This is horrible. This is not what I wanted at all. Right. So it's more cute than it is horribly offensive and uh, horrible like idolatry, intentional idolatry. Well, again, though, if the premise is something as scary as a nuclear reactor... Yeah, it's not cute at all. It's not cute at all, <laughs> right? Uh, but it's it's not necessarily morally evil either. It's like ignorant. Ignorant or, or the point being they're lacking precision. Hmm. So look at the Nadab and Abihu story. We open the book of Leviticus with seven chapters of instructions about how to meticulously do a, a variety of animal offerings and grain offerings in the tabernacle system. Most of us, again, read those and are like, there's repetition. We're just seeing these terms used all over the place. If anything means anything to us, it's like little bits that talk about atonement. And then we like maybe pick up a piece there or, you know, but most of it, we're like, why in the world are these instructions even here? So we have those instructions, then we read a chapter of the, the priests being ordained, and then a chapter of the, the launch of the tabernacle. The green light has been pushed. They actually are doing all that has been prescribed thus far to instate this new system. And then what do we read? A story about two of the high priests, who are the ones in charge of doing all of these things carefully and precisely, doing something that is ambiguously titled unauthorized, not prescribed, and they die. The takeaway is you have to be very careful and run this system exactly as prescribed. Otherwise, you won't survive. The ark doesn't fit anywhere in here, right? As far as instructions that are followed and then you live i'm just trying to think of like a flip side just tell me no and we can move on no nate this is great this is you starting to read i think the way it's a fun way to read and the way we're supposed to read we had connected before the the uza story of carrying the ark with the nadab and abihu story i meant boat ark but yeah oh <laughs> uh okay interesting uh, okay, before I make my other connection, where do you see a connection with the boat? It's tragic, by the way, that English interpretations translate both Noah's Ark and the box which God lives in. Two totally different words. Translating them both as Ark is a horrendous injustice. I was just going for the fact of, you know, the simple, simple like instructions that are not followed leading to death. Oh, and then instructions that are followed leading to life. And all the careful instructions that we are right. allowed to read, if if allowed is a <laughs> is the right word, forced to read, right? If you've made your commitment to reading Genesis. Yeah. About how to carefully build this thing. Yeah, because it seems really, really specific. You know? And again, like I'm just I'm just trying to look at, at passages that I had always used as like, you know, look, God is very a very serious God. So he takes these things in the Old Testament very seriously and people didn't follow him and they, they died slash he, I don't know, he killed them, I guess. Um, 
And look, then we go to Jesus. You don't accept him. Like he takes this very, very seriously. So basically it was just to communicate this like seriousness. So I'm just looking at that and saying, based on what you just said of rules that aren't followed, instructions, I guess, and precision in instructions aren't followed leading to death. I'm just looking at that and going, could that be an example of, yeah, precision and very precise instructions that led to life? Yep. Noah building the ark was a very clear uh, illusion preface to Moses receiving instructions to build the tabernacle. Uh, the, the careful precision there to follow these instructions to build this uh, as planned. Um, but, but interesting, I thought you were making a connection to the other ark, the ark of God. Which may, yeah, makes sense too. I can see that too. Yeah. So, so get this. So you got a, a section in Exodus about how to build the thing and then a story about building it wrongly. You have a section in Leviticus about running the thing and then a story about running it uncarefully. And then you have this whole set of texts in Numbers, again, very tedious to read, about how to transport the thing. Oh, and then you have the story of the guys like walking and that one guy reaches out because it's on the ox and it's jiggling and he reaches out and uh, tries to do a good and noble thing, right? Save this really precious box and uh, puts his hand on it and is struck down. Exactly. You have a set of instructions about how to transport it. It's very careful because... You're actually going to be carrying one group is in charge of carrying the most holy things, the ark itself. So it's utterly important that you take special precautions to do this. What's another word for holy there that we could use? Just basically dangerous and uh, potentially dangerous? Yeah, I think that's the next question we have to address. For now, potentially dangerous, not potentially, dangerous. Remember, fire is the primary metaphor. Uh, you are Alka-Seltzer, it is soda. So don't let the two mix, right? The contact is the dangerous thing. So don't make contact. Again, holiness is the right word. Our understanding of what holiness means is the wrong understanding. Right. Uh, we'll get there in a sec. Off, off limits for touch. Dangerous for touch. It's, you know, there'd be like the extra strong uh, hazmat symbol like on the side of it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like the little vial of a a chemical with like the three, like that nuclear symbol, you know? Yep. So you put on those extra heavy gloves, you put on your suit, you put on your goggles, like you follow the strictest of all procedures when handling this substance. That's the idea. Do you remember that show? I I think it's called Just for Laughs. And they do like little sketches where they'll do, it's kind of like a candid camera type of show. Anyways, one was just real quick. Like people were swimming in the swimming pool and these two guys in like full decked out hazmat, hazmat suits walk by with a big yellow drum with like nuclear hazmat symbol warnings all over it. And they walk by this like public pool and it's just full of water or whatever, but they like trip and dump the thing into the pool and you got to youtube it it's so funny watching people try to swim away from it as fast as possible it's hilarious they're like lifting children out of the pool and like trying to swim away as quickly it's it's my kind of humor but that would be essentially those stickers that that yellow drum that we're talking about that would that would be essentially the the ark of the covenant then in this in this story right so so the story is these guys do something that seems totally basic they they use a cart 
and some cows to carry this heavy box. And the guy thinks the box is about to fall, so he reaches out, touches it with his hands, is destroyed. What is the lesson here? First Chronicles 15 states it explicitly. We did not inquire of God about how to do it in the prescribed way. The story, the point of the story, is about not following the set of prescriptions for how to transport the thing. So this story is specifically having a conversation with those texts and numbers giving prescriptions. And again, the lesson here isn't Uzzah was a bad guy and tried to catch the thing because he was morally depraved. No, I don't just to be to be fair, I don't think that was what was ever said about this. I think it was always like a wow, look at this, like even things that you think you're doing that are, they seem to be like the correct thing to do. If it doesn't follow the rule that God put out there, then it's actually wrong. So I think this was actually used as evidence of uh, even things that don't feel correct and don't feel good. God said that's that's what's actually good. And so we have to follow that. And it's it's more of this, and you you know, we talk about this all the time of like, it's more of this unplugging from reality that we see around us and more plugging into God's reality right? And it makes us inept as Christians. It makes us inept of having like the actual conversations we need to have, talking about the issues of the day, because we have to then say something is good that is not good and something is bad that is being called good. And not to, I mean, I I really, I I bring that up because I think this is, this is sort of building into that case. And these are the verses that are used to do that. Right. Because he's not, he's not doing something bad. And so I don't think anyone would say that. He's not, he's not like, hey, this, they're not like, hey, this guy is morally inept. They would say like, wow, he's doing a, he, he tried to do a good thing. And just think about that. Think about how seriously we need to take God's rules, uh, God's laws, um, even if they don't seem correct to us. Yeah, I hear you. So to, to understand any of these stories well, what was wrong with Aaron and the Israelites making this golden calf? What were they actually doing, right? What was wrong with what Nadab and Abihu did? What was wrong with what Uzzah did? You have to look at them all together. They're attached to each other. The The point is not morality. The point is not God is strict because God's standards of ethical behavior are so high just in and of themselves. The point is danger requiring extra precaution and protocols that outline just how tricky and dangerous this entire situation is. So Uzzah touching the ark is Nadab and Abihu offering incense when it wasn't prescribed, is Aaron and the Israelites making a calf instead of a tent. And all three of those are lessons about how dangerous it is for Israel to have the very thing which it is most wanting, which is a life lived with God in proximity, physical proximity. So here's back to my point about Sky Jathani's book. Being with God is as dangerous and scary as it is optimistic and encouraging. These stories, the reason they are not the positive, encouraging K-Love stories is they are all coming from a worldview in which the default assumption is that contact with God is intrinsically the most dangerous thing in the world, right? Not 
again, not because of character, not because of anybody's desires, not because of whatever. It has to do with the intrinsic states of holiness and not holiness or what's been called profanity, the, the, the difference between holy and profane, uh, or at, at an even greater issue is the, the contact between holiness and impurity or defilement. It's beliefs in these states and what they mean and what they signify. That's what these stories are getting at. That's why all of these chapters giving us precise instructions, which I don't think the author ever intended for us to build a tabernacle ourselves, right? Or even run the system ourselves, which I know that's a debated uh, point. I think the reason we're reading them is because they're all a way of painting this mosaic picture of this razor's edge tension that the great thing we're about to see happening, the climax here, is that God is actually going to come and dwell in this campsite. There, the, the thing that is happening, the thing that happened at the moment Nadab and Abihu were destroyed was the very thing Israel most wanted, was to camp with God, right? And it's the thing that the entire story arc is pointing to. But what these stories are doing in junction with the instructions is, is pointing out the tension in these stories. It's good, but dangerous. And therefore, an entire system is going to be necessary to overcome this danger, to overcome these obstacles. And that system is the Levitical system. So what the Levitical system was for was to overcome to overcome this danger, to overcome these obstacles and allow Israel to to be with God and survive it, right? And that's a very different way, I think, of interpreting what the laws were <laughs> and interpreting what these texts were about uh, than, than most of those uh, I've seen. Okay, holiness. Let's just let's just get into it real quick for for a brief overview because this is what I'm saying. Holiness is the reason it's dangerous. Holiness is the word for what I'm calling the the power and danger of a nuclear substance, right? So, Nate, to you and your view, what is holiness? How has it been used? Yeah, my view, I, I, I don't know if I'll get into that. I, I don't really know. But how it's been used, I think it's what I've talked about in this episode so far. It's, it's about God being perfect. Um, in, the, in the view that I used to teach, God is perfect. We are not. And, you know, we can't be perfect. And so we need Jesus to um, cover us so that we can be holy because we can't be holy on our own. Um, and if you try to be holy on your own, then you're missing the whole point. If you try to be good enough, you try to to earn that uh, that status, then you're missing the whole point. And so you need Jesus to cover you, and then you can then you can be holy. Um, so trusting in Jesus is the way you're holy. Trusting that what He did actually makes me holy makes me holy, and then you can be in God's presence um, if you've done those set of conditions. So that's sort of what holiness is. It's it's basically, I think, in that understanding, it's very connected to morality. 
not not actually trying to be a really good person. Um, in the reformed circles that I ran in, it was realizing you can't be a good person, and so trusting in Jesus being the good person for you. Um, and then you like try to get better, you try to be like decent, and you try to like you know sanctification, right? Um, that process should be happening, but like the the salvation moment is about realizing you can't be good enough. You need to trust morally good enough, and you need to trust in the one who was morally good enough. Right. So what we'll see is in the Torah, where these ideas are first given to us to uh, read and approach, holiness has zero to do with morality. It becomes later much more connected with morality. But here, holiness has, has nothing to do with that. And if if... Some of you listening are new to the show. You're probably thinking I'm just trying to get morality out of all this so like I can, you know, we can make make up rules for ourselves and just get away with whatever we want. I am like as ruthlessly committed to living an ethical life and helping people around me, especially Christians, live ethical lives as anybody. I have no desire to like avoid the the discussion of morality. That's not <laughs> that's not my agenda like driving this the point is because we've seen ideas as intrinsically moral such as holiness we've misunderstood those ideas and i think then we've misunderstood where ethics and morality does play a, a more central part so we're going to parse this and then we'll sort of put it back together in the end sort of a deconstruction reconstruction but so here's the thing jacob milgram uh popularized this decades ago um but i think you can just see this if you read carefully it would have been assumed by every uh ancient audience member of these texts there are two essential categories that this entire idea of a system is built on the first is holiness versus the profane or just the normal, okay? So these are two states. On one end, you have the utterly holy, the most holy, the holy of holies is the most holy space. On the other end, you have the things that are just utterly mundane. They're not bad. They're not immoral. They're not even necessarily dirty. They're just normal. They are not holy. Okay, so God is holy. Humans in and of their own are not. They're profane. When Moses goes up the mountain, right? And we mentioned this story. Moses sees God. God says, don't get too close. And take off your sandals because this is holy ground. That mountain is holy because God is holy and God's space is holy. Moses was in a dangerous situation because Moses was a normal, mundane, profane man coming from the normal, mundane world into contact with holiness. But then we'll see the other thing that story is hinting at, that again, we're all supposed to know, is the second category is that of purity versus impurity, or defiled versus clean, or clean versus unclean, okay? So that is the the category saying again not intrinsically so those that category the, the distinguishing between the clean and unclean is not intrinsically a moral category at all it's again it's a state but 
one way a person or an object or a space can become unclean is through moral defilement. So that's where you see things can ritually defile you, like a dead body or blood or fluids Hmm. or feces can make you ritually defiled. You haven't done anything wrong. You are not, you have not sinned. You're not a bad person. You have just become unclean. Similarly, some offenses, some moral behaviors can also make one unclean. And so with uncleanness, the the goal was then to get out of the state of uncleanness and to cleanse yourself to become clean. So here's uh, the thing Milgram made clear, but I think you can see from your own. Those two categories, which are both two opposites, right? So you have four possible states. Uh, You have holy, unholy, clean, unclean, right? Those are the sort of the four uh, adjectives that can be applied. Yeah. What that means, and I know this sounds all weird and technical, whatever, it'll be sort of important. What that means is there are three practical states that a person can be in. You can be clean and holy. You can be unclean and unholy. Or you can be unclean and unholy. But you cannot ever be unclean and holy. Right. And I know this sounds weird, but but I had to sit with this for a while to really let that actually make sense of these categories. So God is holy, and and that thing, that fact, is the thing represented by fire. That is the thing that nothing can come close unless that thing is also holy. Okay? But you cannot be holy unless you are also already clean. Maybe give us an example of of what it would look like to be in one of these states. Sure. So the high priests, and this is where stuff gets really fun and the system starts to make sense. The high priests, and this is also, by the way, where my theory that holiness substances worked as insulation rather than decontamination, which... <laughs> I know we're not there yet, but uh, so so the high priests again they're they're graded graded spaces of holiness. So part of what this looks like on a geographic plane is that God is in the center of of the camp, but on one end of the tabernacle, and God is behind multiple barriers. God is in a box with cherubim that hide that. God is in a box with a lid covering the box, with cherubim hiding the lid, with smoke making a visual barrier so that the high priest doesn't even see the box, and a curtain further creating a barrier between the box and other people. That whole thing is in a tent. That whole tent is in this tabernacle compound, that whole compound is in the land of the Israelites. You have this concentric circles. And the closer one goes to God, the further toward holiness one gets, the more 
protocols of becoming clean and then becoming holy a person has to follow, and the more layers of insulation a person must have on them. It's as if you're getting closer and closer to radioactive materials. So practically, blood is used, we'll get into this later, as an insulating layer because there's divine life in the blood. Right. Then the high priest, I don't know if you ever noticed this, literally one of these long chapters about what to build is the high priest's official garment, which is a holy garment, a holy outfit, holy set of clothes that literally has the words holy embroidered on the headband (laughs) of the garment. And the clothes are like a holy costume that take an otherwise unholy person. How though? And how does something you're wearing? (laughs) That is the million dollar question. And that is the question I'm going to answer later on, try to prove with the idea of insulation, which I think is the natural reading of clothes. Um, But the idea is practically more layers have to be in between the the human and the holiness, okay? Uh, So so that's one example. The high priest has to add all of these layers to himself to get close to this substance at the heart of it that the other individual Israelites don't have to have. Uh, Yet what's interesting is, so the high priest gets an entire outfit to go really close. Mm -hmm. The other priests who just hang out at the door of the tent, they get a belt, a holy belt, and then every male Israelite gets one holy thread. So you actually have these grades of holy clothes that are providing some layer of insulation or something. Uh, Mm -hmm. But the idea is, The closer to holiness one gets, the more that a normal, profane object or person must do things to become holy. So you have to mix substances, right? So you're transforming or covering a substance that can't be mixed with holiness so that it can actually come into contact with holiness, okay? Then in the realm of defilement... And this would have affected uh, the everyday Israelite far more. One example is if you had a skin disease, you had to, A, get the heck out of the camp before you allowed that defilement to spread to other otherwise clean Israelites. Right. Then you would go through a, uh, an elaborate system of cleansing rituals involving multiple substances that were believed to cleanse people, including water and blood, to make one clean again. And then when that person was clean, then they could come back into the camp. So the idea was, God is holy, so contact is dangerous, okay? For contact to be possible in any way, some element of holiness has to be accomplished. And the more contact or the more direct the contact, the more holiness needs to be accomplished. So for someone, for example, to sit in a room and look God face to face, that person would have to be as holy as God. 
for someone to share a campground with God, but have a wall and a door and an altar and a curtain and a box and a lid in between you and God, you would need to be holy in some sense, but not to the same extent that you would if you were sharing a room with God. But to maintain any semblance of holiness, you would have to maintain cleanliness. You'd have to be ritually clean. Does this make any sense <laughs> whatsoever, or have we like moved into uh, the stratospheres of strangeness? Yeah, no, it makes it makes sense. Uh, it's just the yeah, I get the defilement ritual impurity one a bit better. I think it's it's still the like the holy one. How it doesn't seem like the the ways you're making yourself holy are actually. I guess I'm still just struggling with the word with the word holy um, and how these things are actually making you holy. Um, but maybe that's because I don't fully understand in this new way, like what is holy about God and how we can try to equal that or at least prepare ourselves for that with, unless it's just kind of a figurative thing, we're putting these certain types of clothes on or something like that. Um, to like, it's a symbolize symbolizing the, that we're, we're trying here or something like that. Like, I guess I'm, I, I'm, I'm struggling with that just a little bit. Yeah. I, I think where we'll get, I think one of the true million dollar questions, uh, that the rabbis wrestled with, the Pharisees wrestled with, Jesus wrestled with, and Jews and Christians today have to wrestle with is, is what is and what was the intrinsic meaning of these procedures? Was it symbolic? Was it literally pragmatic? Did, did the priest using blood and oil and clothing actually make something real, right? Like truly make them holy? Or was this all symbolic language? Like that is a very complicated question and we'll get to it. I think we have to get into that question though. Taking these texts literally... And in a strange way, not not literally as instructed for us to go build a tabernacle and put it into <laughs> in operation, right. but literally as in when Leviticus says that these are holy clothes that will make the priest holy and thereby allow the priest to enter the holy of holies where God will make his, where God will be present from time to time. Mm-hmm. I think we have to take that at face value, right? That that the belief was these various procedures and protocols were actually going to allow physical contact, not some God is in our hearts and we have this vague, ambiguous, abstract relationship, but we will actually be camping out with God. And therefore, these, these protocols uh, are re- required for that. So one last thing I'll bring up, just sort of some basics into this system to sort of further hammer home the point that to understand it well is not to to become amoral people, no, but it is to separate these procedures and rituals from moral categories. Even Rabbi Danya in our conversation last week pointed out, Impurity isn't a moral category. It is about a state. Pure and impure is a state. Right. 
uh, free of moral judgments. <laughs> it's just a state uh, based on this whole world of concerns about being close to God. So two things. One, what we'll come to see, one of the, the first building blocks for me in realizing atonement was not what I thought it was. It was not appeasing an angry God, is that the first objects to be atoned, covered, we'll look at what that word means uh, in the future, were not people. They were objects in the sanctuary that were going to be between the people and God. And obviously an object couldn't have done something wrong or been morally, you know, inept or something like that. Correct. The altar has not sinned. The altar just needs to be, again, I'll make this point later, insulated. Okay. Hmm. It is part of the protocol. The priests also become covered in blood because those priests are going to go way closer than all the other Israelites were. So, so we'll get in all that later. But the first piece is that even atonement, covering with blood, was, was not about sin. And we can see that most clearly. It had something to do with making space and objects and people prepared to come into contact with with holiness. Right. The second is, and I know this sounds crazy and there's a whole set of conversations that everybody probably needs to go have about this, but one fact that in Christian or in Christian circles has not been pointed out nearly often enough is the entire system was never intended to or capable of dealing with what we now refer to as sin and guilt. Hmm. So it is expressly stated multiple times that the only kind of moral impurity that could actually be cleansed via this system with animals and blood and oil were essentially accidents, unintentional, unintentional, unknown, breaking of these rules. And again, I think here we should be reading the Uzzah story, the Nadab and Abihu story, the Aaron and the golden calf story. You have these strict rules. You have to follow them. And then there's this idea that if you unknowingly break one, you can be cleansed of that impurity. But what we think of when we think of sin and guilt is like, I cheated on my spouse. In this system... Such such a sin, such an offense, such an immoral act was considered so defiling that the only way to safeguard the system and the community was to get rid of you entirely, and therefore you were to be executed, and, and that was how that moral defilement was purged from the system. Hmm. Gotcha. So in terms of like thinking about ethics and what to do with the laws, there's a lot there. But the point was atonement couldn't ever even deal with that. It was never even considered or, in, or imagined as something that could handle something like that. So the way you would handle 
the defilement of like real wrongdoing was simply to get rid of the person. Right. And that was how you would maintain the cleanliness of the entire camp, the cleanliness of the entire people, the purity of it. So two ways to just show the system wasn't about guilt, forgiveness, sin per se. It was about maintaining the purity for this overall project of camping with God. And if you're still with us and you haven't just jumped off this bandwagon, uh, in my view, from here on out, things get way more interesting and we can look at some of these details and the way this connects to the New Testament, different stories, and it all becomes fascinating. But I know it's been super weird up till now. Yeah, I'm ready to connect this all and plug it into like Jesus and then start to change some of those ways we interpret Jesus and interpret what atonement is for us today. Um, and that's going to be fun to do next time. Thanks for spending time with us. Today, wherever you are, listening in your car, washing dishes, at work, wherever, we appreciate you being on this journey with us, and we hope you know that you're not alone. There are millions of others that are thinking through this type of stuff and just asking tough questions about the Bible, Jesus, and God, and religion, and trying to find a better way forward. So you're on this journey with us, and and I also wanted to let you know we have a second podcast called Utterly Heretical. If you want to hear sort of how Tim and I are processing a lot of this stuff, a little bit more of the like nitty gritty, like personal stories um, and how some of this stuff actually hits us and what we believe and and how we do practical things like prayer and, and stuff like that. That's what that show is all about. And it's just for supporters, um, helps us kind of keep doing this work. So you can find that at patreon.com slash almost heretical. All right. We will catch you next time. Peace, y'all.